She left her home riding a bicycle with only $100 in her pocket, determined to circumnavigate the African continent. But what happened next was terrifying, life-threatening, and yet the best thing she could have imagined. Coming up, a roller coaster ride of impossible goals, problems, fears, and most of all, determination to achieve what she set out to do. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We've got a good one for you. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. And Best Rest is also the North American distributor for Google Tech filters. Visit them online at www.cyclepump.com. That's cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. You can also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free at www.maxbmw.com. I'm Sam Manning. Ryan Field. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Pat Jake. Robert Schwartz. Nathan Millwall. Linda Foster. Simon Pavey. Raymond Coach. Grant Johnson. Edgar Peterson. Ben King. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any bag into motorcycle luggage using a unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, and that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad mounted on your swing arm, eliminating the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprocket. One ounce of oil lasts over 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprocket and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. Two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Hello? Joe? Hi. Joe Rust is a natural goal setter, but that doesn't mean it comes easy to her. In fact, I think it's probably quite the opposite. Now, her story, at least for us, begins when she decides to ride a bicycle around Africa by herself and then by motorcycle. And after a, well, I could say rather convoluted and extreme adventure, she finds she's fallen in love with motorcycling and sets some new goals for herself. And in just a few short years, she becomes a BMW brand ambassador. She starts BMW GS Girls, earns her certification as a BMW off-road motorcycle instructor. She becomes a marshal at the BMW GS Trophy. She starts a motorcycle tour company where she does instructions for off-road riding and motorcycle tours. She writes a book about her adventures and then she's diagnosed with bipolar disorder and she's happy with that. Joe, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a while since we talked, but but I, I do remember, like I know we've talked since then, but four years ago, we did an interview with you about your trip around Africa. And I sort of want to just do like a, a fast version of that now so that those who may not have heard that would hear it. Um, it it's quite a story. You, you start out, you, you get an idea to ride Africa uh, around on your bicycle. So, and, and I want to talk about that, but first of all, you're, you're from South Africa, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Born and bred in Johannesburg. So how does this whole story start? Well, 
it it all came about when, um, like you said, I, I had decided to cycle around South Africa on my bicycle and all well, around Africa. And I got as far as Angola, about three and a half thousand kilometers away. And one fateful Saturday, uh, the, uh, well, uh, a truck pulled up in front of me next to the road and four guys got out of the truck and they, it was only when I noticed that they had uh, machetes and knives that they weren't just there to chat and they ended up stealing my bicycle and all my kit. And it was in that moment that I decided, you know, there's got to be an easier way. And that's when I decided that I want to start over on a motorcycle. And that's where my journey um, on motorcycles started. So it's, you know, it hasn't been that long. You left uh, on that trip with your, on your bicycle trip. I think it was $100 in your pocket. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think most travelers would think that's slightly underfunded. <laughs> slightly <laughs> so <laughs> I, i'm trying to get an idea you know so the listener can get an idea of what type of person you are because someone who leaves on a trip around africa by themselves on a bicycle with a hundred dollars is it faith <laughs> is it i mean what made you think you could do that yeah I, I i don't know i think it's just my character i've always been a kind of all or nothing type of person and <laughs> You know, I, I decided that I want to circumnavigate the African continent, and that was it. There was no turning back. So, um, so, you know, it didn't matter how I did it. It just mattered that I gave it my best. And, um, you know, sponsorships weren't forthcoming, and that's why I decided, oh, you know, I just have to, I just have to get going. And the rest will sort itself out. I truly believe that, you know, it will all just work out in the end. And that's why I left with, you know, a hundred dollars. <laughs> that was it. My bicycle, my kit. And well, in the end, it did work out. You tried to get sponsorship for your bicycle trip. Just no one's interested. I mean, why would they, right? It's just a person riding a bicycle around. But what sort of response did you get from people? Right. I mean, yeah, it is. It's, it's to some people it seemed silly. Um, I tried some corporates, uh, companies to get in, get on board and they wouldn't get involved because they said it's too dangerous and it's too risky. It's a woman on her own going around Africa and they didn't want to have their brand, uh, connected to that in case something went wrong, mm. uh, which, which I can understand. I, I get that. Um, so yeah, I, I had all kinds of responses from people thinking that I'm nuts, uh, to people thinking that it's just silly. Um, yeah, all sorts. But you can totally relate to that. Like when you're getting the responses back, you sort of think, well, okay, I expect it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. I get it. I mean, I guess if, if I was someone else, um, and I told myself that I was going to do this, I might have thought I was nuts as well. That um, that robbery where they stole everything, really. I, I think all you had was your pack on your back. Luckily, you got away unscathed. And, and they took really everything you had at that point. I mean, let's face it, you left with $100 and all your gear, your bicycle. They've taken everything from you. But it was probably one of the best things that's happened to you. I'm, I'm putting those words out, but would you say that? 
I would say that, you know, I always make this joke and I say, uh, you know, they literally took everything I had from me, except, like you said, my pack. And in it, I had my cell phone and my, my passport and some money. Um, but in the end, at the end of the day, it turned out to be, I would describe it as a miracle because the Angolan government got involved. Um, unexpectedly and they were just absolutely phenomenal and ended up sponsoring the entire trip and I always say that I feel I need to go back there and thank those four guys for taking my bicycle (laughs) they did me a huge favor (laughs) the cell phone that you mentioned that was in your pack um, along with your passport and a little bit of money the cell phone was really the thing that kicked things off what you the first thing you did was pick up your cell phone and call what yeah, the first thing I did was I picked up my cell phone and I called a friend back home to tell her what had happened. And then the second thing I did was to phone a friend of mine in Luanda, the capital city of Angola, and not realizing that he knows pretty much everyone in government. And he ended up phoning the local chief of police where I was stranded. Uh, there was a town about 10 kilometers from me. And and then he phoned the local governor, who then phoned me, and it just um, it it was chaos. Um, they sent a police vehicle to come and fetch me. The governor flew in on his private plane to make sure that I was safe. They sent out two helicopters from um, from Luanda, from from the capital, to search for these perpetrators that stole my bicycle you know I was just like this is a bicycle guys um and it it was like something out of Hollywood movie really I I, I couldn't believe what was going on around me but you know the Angolan government jumped in made sure I was safe and returned me back home it incredible incredible response to something and particularly because you you know you leave with this hundred dollars in your pocket on your bicycle i mean if you'd known this could have happened i mean really in the end at the final story when we get to this if you'd known all that was going to happen you probably would have jumped on your bike with 20 bucks and, and <laughs> right away as fast as you could <laughs> but so so here you are you're deposited back home you're back home you're safe in south africa um a sane thing to do would be to look at that and go wow that was really lucky that was close time to do something else what, what did you think yeah, that that thought never really crossed my mind. The moment that they stole my bicycle and, and my kids, um, my first thought was, okay, how am I going am I going to start over or do I carry on from here? Do I change from going around on a bicycle to walking around the continent um, and quickly crunch some numbers and figure out it would take me probably like eight years to go around the African continent by foot. So I decided, nah, I'll turn around um, and go back home and find a different way of doing this. So the thought of giving up never really crossed my mind was, okay, what do I do to solve this? And that's, like I said, that's when I decided that I wanted to start over on a motorcycle, um, even though I'd never been on a motorbike before in my life. Some people um, do believe in, you know, sort of... um things line up for themselves however you want to look at it you know if you you commit yourself to something things align themselves to you um it, it could be uh, you know law of attraction however you look at it some people believe in that do you believe in that 
I don't know. I've been giving it a lot of thought. Um, you know, the law of attraction, whether it really, whether it's real or not. I do think there is some um, basis to our thoughts creating our reality. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly how it works. Well, no one really knows how it works. Uh, but I don't know. I, I'm a believer in always trusting your gut, listening to uh, that little voice inside, I call it. Um, and, yeah, thoughts are very powerful. You think it has a lot to do with um, how we act or react to things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, everyone's different, and someone else might have had a different response to what happened to me in Angola. Uh, just because I'm the kind of person who doesn't give up, I, I decided that I would find a different way of doing it. Someone else might have said, you know, like you said, okay, it was a close call. Maybe we should call it a day and do something else. So, yeah, it differs from person to person. I mean, even it, it has a lot, I think, to do with, um, in my mind, how you respond to things. I mean, you said that when your bike was taken, you call your friend, etc. What's running through your mind is this is only a bicycle. Like you're, you're thinking, wow, this is this is incredible. It would be very easy to be in that situation and think, yes, hunt them down, get get my stuff, get revenge almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the amazing thing is that after I returned home and decided I'm going to start over on a motorcycle and the Angolan government came on board and said they would sponsor my entire trip, they actually found my bicycle and all my kits a few days later and returned it all to me. And um, But at that point, I was like, oops, too late. I have a motorcycle now. <laughs> You're going well. Well, what changed things is when you when you decided you were going to. I mean, let's face it. You left with a hundred dollars. You weren't flush with cash. You come back home with nothing, and now you're thinking of doing a motorcycle trip, which is far more money and far more responsibility, far more organizing. I guess the 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 silver lining in the cloud came in a Facebook message. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable um, <laughs> that a minister. Um, actually sent me a Facebook message from Angola saying, you know, we're, we're really sorry about what happened. And if there's anything we can do to help you, please let us know. And that was the moment where I thought to myself, well, there is something I can think of. <laughs> um, and, you know, said to him, look, this is what I'm planning on doing. I want to start over on a motorcycle. And is there you know, any possibility that you would want to come on board or help in any way. And um, that started a conversation. And he then said, you know, send me a proposal and a budget, which I did. Uh, took me a couple of days to kind of work it all out because, like you said, it, it involve, involves a lot more. And uh, crunched some numbers, sent him a, a rough proposal and budget. And a couple of days later, he came back and said, you know, yes, the Angolan government will sponsor the entire trip. Yeah, just incredible. I mean, it would have been so easy to get that message for, on Facebook and, and think, you know, it's just your typical, you know, message saying, we're really sorry what happened. And, and you answer and say, oh, thank you very much. And, you know, uh, and that's the end of it. Yep. But to, to make the leap and actually think that, well, you got nothing to lose at this point. And then you're 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 on the road again. Like you, you know, you you had your trip financed. They bought your motorcycle and paid for all your gear. Yeah. 
So um, the motorcycle, all the gear, what was lucky is because they found my um, kit that had been stolen, um, I just used that in, instead of having to buy a new kit. So my tents and sleeping bag and, you know, those kinds of things, um, I could use that again. And the, the major cost was obviously the, the motorcycle and, you know, panniers and whatever I needed to kit out the bike. Um, but yeah, it was all covered. So your plan was then to ride around Africa? Yeah, correct. So circumnavigating the entire continent, going up the west coast, um, across the north, and then down the east coast to get back to the point where I started from. How many countries away is Angola from South Africa? So you have South Africa, the next country is Namibia, and then it's Angola. So it's fairly close by. How many days ride is it for you? Um, You can do it in... A week. Okay, so you've, yeah. you've got a week to go. Now, I imagine the, the Angola government sponsoring your trip, they obviously want to, you know, do something grand for you when you when you get to Angola. So um, when you arrived in Angola, things didn't exactly work out probably the way you thought it was going to. <laughs> no, no. What happened? So um, I, I was under instruction to wait at the border for... Um, an escort to fetch me and take me to where I'd be staying for my first night back in Angola. And I waited at the border, waited at the border, no one arrived. And I decided, well, I'm going to carry on to stay with friends of mine where I'd stayed before. And I notified the local police where I was and the local um, governor. So they knew where I was. And I stayed with two friends of mine. And that evening, we had just finished having supper when um, I was sitting with my back to their front door. And I saw my friend across from me. I saw her face and her eyes go wide and she just started screaming. And I thought, oh, no, what is going on? And when I looked behind me, four men came barging into the house with a crowbar and a gun and they were there to rob us. And they literally taped us to the chairs um, and stole whatever they could. And they were just going through the house. And I was thinking, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. You know, it's my first night back in Angola and now this. Just, it, it's like, a, like you said, a Hollywood movie. I mean, that, that's what it's like. It's like, is it like someone wrote the script for it. Well, that's the thing. You cannot make this up. I mean, it was insane. And I remember thinking, um, you know, my jacket was lying on the floor at the front door with like a thousand dollars in it. And I was like, oh, please don't look at the jacket. Please don't look at the jacket. And, you know, I wasn't telling them that I had any money. Um, I knew they wouldn't take the bike. Somehow I just knew that they wouldn't take the bike. But what happened was they did take my cell phone and... Um, the police was trying to get a hold of me, and because I wasn't um, answering the phone, they obviously thought, well, maybe we should go and check on her. Luckily, they did come and check on me. So um, these guys who were rummaging through the house, uh, they had someone as a lookout outside, and he called them and said, they better get out of here. And the police 
the local chief of police had arrived to come and check on me. And when they walked into the house, we sat there taped to the chairs with our mouths covered with tape. And um, I, I, I don't know, I, I couldn't help but burst out laughing because I thought it was so ironic. And the local chief of police, this big bear of a man, came over to me and they got the tape off, you know, freed us um, from the chairs. And he just uh, took me in his arms and gave me a big hug and said, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And it it was insane, absolutely insane. Uh, but, you know, the, the sad thing about it was that um, both times, the first time in northern Angola and the second time right in the south, um, it wasn't Angolans that attacked me. The first time it was Congolese who attacked me in the north. And the second time it was um, Namibians who had crossed the border and was, uh, you know, stealing whatever they could from nearby villages and towns. Did they get the the people that broke in and taped you to the chair? No, they did search for them. Um, you know, within minutes, there were probably 10 cars in in uh, and around um, the property where we were staying, but they never found them. Hmm. But you, you're very quick to say, this is not Angola. This is not a good picture of Angola. Yeah, I know. And it's such a beautiful and wonderful country with such um, friendly... Um, warm-hearted people and that's why you know I'm saying these weren't um, Angolan people who did this when you look back now on to the trip you did in particular leaving by bicycle do, do you think that um, as a cyclist you were more vulnerable because what you said was when when they stole your bicycle you were thinking that somehow the motorcycle was going to be the answer w- would that be fair to say that you'd see cycling as sort of being more vulnerable Oh, definitely. You know, I felt very vulnerable on the bicycle because the thing is, you know, um, you can only go so fast and, you know, people can outrun you on a bicycle. Mm. So even though on the motorcycle you're still, um, you're still vulnerable and you're still exposed to the elements, but it's, it's a little less vulnerable than going at, you know, 20 kilometers an hour on a bicycle. Yeah, I've always thought that um, you, you just become much more obvious. You're there all day riding along a stretch of road, you know, for instance, that you'd buzz down on a motorcycle in a very short time, minutes, really. Um, and you could be there all day on your bicycle. Meanwhile, everybody who rides by you or drives by you sees what you're doing, sees you're alone, you know, you're riding your yeah. bicycle, what direction you're going in. I mean, you become much more obvious, I think, to, to locals. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, you know, when I did the stretch from South Africa to Angola. It took me three months on a bicycle, but it took me a week on a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember clearly um, on any given day, I would pass like three or four of my previous camping spots where I'd stayed on my bicycle, which would have taken me maybe three or four days, but took me one day on my motorcycle. And the route that you did around Africa... I mean, most people consider that, you know, as the, I often say the real deal. People think of Africa as, there's no messing around there. When you go to Africa and you're going to run through, I mean, depending on where you're going in Africa, of course, but a lot of it, it's risky and it's the real deal. And there you are going around by yourself. 
do you have um, you know, tips or, or, or um, opinions that you give people when they ask about that trip? Well, you know, it, like you say, it is the real deal and it can be um, quite challenging, uh, especially Western Africa. You know, the, the eastern part, the eastern coast is um, what's known as the, I don't know why it's called that, but it's called the Coca-Cola route. Um, it's, it's, it's fairly easy. Uh, but, you know, what I learned on my trip was like 99% of people that I met um, were there to help me rather than harm me. Um, even uh, what happens in Angola, um, you know, I had two other incidents on, on the trip, but they were pretty minor. It could have been far worse. But most of the people that I met um, were inquisitive, wanted to know, you know, who I was and what I was doing and why I was doing it. And most people would, you know, offer me a place to stay or offer me help when I needed it rather than, um, you know, being there to get something from me or to harm me. So, and, and I learned, you know, a smile, a genuine smile goes a long way. So just being friendly and courteous to people, courteous, you know, yeah. Do you have some, or did you learn some method for sort of telling who not to trust? Yeah, it's amazing how when you're on the road, your I don't know, your um, senses are heightened, and uh, you know you you really learn to listen to your instincts. Um, you know, you you can kind of sense when someone is not really, um, what's the word I would use? Uh, Genuine. Yeah, exactly. When someone's not completely genuine, um, or if a place is a bit dodgy, you know, you should rather stay away from it. Uh, so I, I really learned to listen to my instincts on on that trip. The thing is, with that sort of thing, though, is th- that that's one of those things you can't pass on to someone. You know, as as far as a skill, that's something you have to learn. How long did it take you to learn that? Yeah, it is something that you need to learn, and I think well. <sighs> Having grown up in Johannesburg in South Africa, it's um, you are a bit more street smart. Um, you know, it's a big city, and you know I, I know a lot of people see it as quite a dangerous place, uh, which is not really any any city in the world has its you know unsavory characters. But um, again, I think it's something that I grew up with. And I think we probably all have, you know, a little bit of our, our gut feeling. I, I have read a little bit on, on what gut feeling is or what some people think it is. And I think we all sort of have a bit of it, at least to start with anyway. I mean, we've been in situations, probably everyone can relate to that, where you've been in a situation and you find that uh, something just doesn't feel right. You know, somebody, the look on someone's face, nothing they're doing or saying, but the look of, of their face, the way they stand, etc. something is throwing you off and giving you some sort of indicator that says, I don't feel good here. Well, that's the thing. I mean, um, everyone has instincts. And if you look at, you know, animals, um, it's the same thing. Animals have instincts. So do we, you know, we, um, you know, we've been around for much less time than, you know, a lot of other animals, but we also started out with having to rely heavily on our instincts. And I think that's something that's, um, stayed with us. Uh, it's it's a bit dampened now because we don't live in the wild and don't have to hunt every day, uh, but it's still there. It's just a matter we have to learn to trust it. Yeah, that's a thing. At least how to hear it. 
Yeah, how do you? Listen. It's just to some degree without being paranoid because it's very easy to be paranoid about things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's there's so much more to your story. You you keep going on um, on your adventure. You end up coming back. When you come back, you sort of look at motorcycling in a different way. What when I finish the trip? Yeah, when you when you finish the trip, I mean, like you know, you started out with a motorcycle as transportation, but I sort of get the sense that when you were done, that that this became something else to you. It did, and um, you know, I never would have guessed that it would turn out to become what it did to me. Um, you know, when I finished the trip, I got in touch with BMW in Germany headquarters, and um, we exchanged some emails about what I had done. And they actually offered to fly me to Germany to their Motorrad Days, which is one of the biggest motorcycling events in Europe. Um, and I was absolutely amazed. You know, I was so excited and ended up becoming a brand ambassador for BMW Motorrad for a couple of years. And then um, ended up doing a lot of training and then... Uh, qualified as an accredited uh, off-road instructor. Um, and it's, yeah, it's become my life, really. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and I mean, so so now you're you're um, you're an off-road instructor. You have started your own company. In the meanwhile, you started um, the BMW GS Girls. Yeah, yeah. So um, that started in 2014. Um, I started the BMW GS Girls. And it's it's grown um, exponentially. There are so many local groups in different countries all over the world now. And it's amazing to see how the women, you know, get together, um, and communicate in these groups. And it's, it's grown into a wonderful community. What is it? What is BMW GS girls? It's basically just a platform where, you know, female riders can come together and share their passion in, in one sentence. That's what it is. And you've been uh, involved with BMW then since, or at least the GS Trophy? Yes. Um, so I was a marshal, the first female marshal at the International GS Trophy in 2016 in Thailand. So, um, I mean, that was an amazing event. And it was the first year that they had a female team um, included in the event. And I was part of the panel who chose uh, the finalists so they chose 10 finalist females from around the world to compete and then go through a process of elimination until they had three girls who made up the first international female team. And they competed in the GS Trophy in 2016, and I was a marshal at the event. Yeah, that had to be a little bittersweet because you wanted to participate in the GS Trophy. Yes, <laughs> I would have loved to participate, but unfortunately, you know, I had to make a choice. It was um, either become an instructor or compete in the GS Trophy. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, I decided, well, I'd I'd rather be an instructor um, and still somehow be involved in the GS Trophy if possible. And um, I was very lucky to be able to... uh, you know, be the first female marshal and be involved in that uh, event, even though I wasn't part of the female team. We're going to take a two minute break to thank a couple of sponsors to help bring this episode to you. But when we come back, Joe is going to tell us how she managed to become such a good rider so fast. And we're also going to talk about her bipolar disorder and a whole bunch more. Stay with us. We got a lot more coming up. 
If I were to replace my bike right now, I really don't know what model I would buy. I don't know what brand I would buy. I mean, there's so many choices out there. Really, for adventure motorcycling, we're in a great position right now if you're looking to buy a new bike. But my point is, no matter what bike I chose to buy right now, there's a few things that I would change right off the showroom floor. One would be the tires, because the factory-supplied tires never suit my needs. The other, the foot pegs. The tires connect the bike with the ground, and the foot pegs connect me with my bike. And I'm always trying to increase my skill level on the bikes. I'm always trying to to push my limits. I want a solid connection between me and my bike. And IMS foot pegs do that for me. Properly designed pegs for adventure riding that are extremely tough. They're cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They use a certified heat treating, which is a homogenizing and annealing process. They're built in the USA and they have a lifetime warranty. Seriously, they had me with properly designed and extremely tough. Have a look at IMS Products' full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs at their website, www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, make sure they mention that you you heard it here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, imsproducts.com. If you find yourself in southern British Columbia, you're going to have to make your way to Highway 33 to Beaverdale, Beaverdale, British Columbia. Why? Because it's home of the Red Rock Garage. The Red Rock Garage is a small coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. It's your place to stop as a motorcyclist. You have to do it. It's just one of those things that needs to be done when you're passing through the area. But next summer, when you're planning a ride, it's a destination for you because it's not only a coffee shop and a garage, great place to get your fuel. And they say that they have the best coffee around. You'll have to drop by and try that out for yourself. But they've also got a B&B there. They've got camping. It's a great riding destination. So if over the winter you have time and you're going by the area, drop by, check it out, and then make it a summer destination. Make it part of whatever route you're planning for next year. British Columbia is great riding. So drop by the Red Rock Garage. They've got a website you can check out, www.redrockgarage.ca. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, you drop by for a cup of coffee, throw it in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, redrockgarage.ca. It, it was just a few years, really, that, that you went from, you know, being a new rider to being a very advanced rider now where you're actually marshalling. Like you said, the, the first female marshal for a GS trophy, you have to be a good rider at that point. And you were already an instructor at that point. How did you make that transition so fast? I mean, it just seems like a sh- very short period of time. Yeah, I did a lot of training. And I mean, a lot of training. So every day I was training on the bike. Um, you know, it was it was funny that I went all the way around Africa and then came back, finished the trip. And then I decided maybe I should go for, for some training, you know, <laughs> did 45,000 kilometers and then went for my training course and absolutely fell in love with it and did another training course and another training course. So I did a beginners a couple of times, then, you know, level two or intermediate then I did the advanced, and at that point, I was the first female to have done the advanced course here in South Africa. And, you know, it's it's just time in the saddle. That's all it is. And I had a lot of it, really a lot of it. And that's what helped me progress so quickly um, from, you know, being an average rider, just getting along to becoming, uh, you know, a pretty advanced rider at that point. 
Yeah, I've seen, uh, uh, I saw a video of you riding. I was just blown away, really. Um, very impressive riding. But you're saying, like, uh, training every day. Are you setting up a course or something like that at your home and, and going out and training? So I was lucky at, the, at that time. Um, I was living on a, on a farm um, that was pretty much the layout was for adventure riding. So there were courses and obstacles, anything you can, um, you know, wish to have for off-road riding. So I had this to my disposal on a daily basis and I would just train every day um, with what I had at the time. Since that uh, point, you you started your own company. What is that about? Yeah, so in it was just after the GS Trophy, I started my own company called Jorus Adventures. And it is basically an adventure touring company that offers adventure motorcycle tours uh, in South Africa and Southern Africa and off-road training mainly for the local market. And the tours are mainly for the international market. And it's been going really well. So people come to you now to learn how to ride their motorcycles, in particular large adventure bikes. Yeah, correct. So even uh, when with our tours, um, all the tours include a day, a day's off-road training before the tour. So you know, both local and international riders come to me for training now on the big bikes. And do you think the um, the off-road training makes him a better rider on the road for the adventures? Oh, definitely. You know, I've heard so many people say this over the, the last couple of years that I've been doing so much training is that, you know, an off-road rider m- makes a, a better on-road rider and doing off-road training just makes you such a better and more competent rider on-road. Um, so it's, it's well worth well worth doing it. Yeah, I believe that too. I, I think you, you learn far more riding in the dirt about balance and about control of the motorcycle than what you'll often do on the street. And then the street are, is different skills. But once you've mastered those basic, in particular, low speed skills, yep. once that is all automatic, then you concentrate on what you're doing on the street. You concentrate on traffic and you concentrate on street riding. Yeah, I, you know, I always say that you know, it, it doesn't take much to go fast in a straight line. And I actually have a friend who has, you know, world speed records. She would kill me. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the that's the extreme though. That's the other end of it. And then then it takes yeah. something. That's the other end of it. But you know, when you get down to the slower you get, the harder it gets. You know, the slower you go, the harder it gets. And that takes skill um, and technique. And that's where it starts to get really challenging. And that's what um, events like the GS Trophy is all about. Is testing you, um, testing your technique and your skill, especially slow speed stuff with these heavier, heavier machines. Um, and, you know, that takes training. We didn't mention that um, the reason that you contacted BMW was because you were riding a BMW. It was, a, it was the F650, was it? Yeah, it was the F650 GS Dakar. And that's the single cylinder? Yeah, it's a single cylinder. It's right. a are, are you still riding BMWs now? I am, but now I'm on a 1200. <laughs> mm. The 1200 being, yeah. do you think that bike's much better? <laughs> We're going to get into the bike thing here, but do you think the 1200 is better than maybe the, something like the 800 or the 650? Yeah, I love my 1200. So I've been on the 1200 for the last uh, three years now, and I wouldn't change it for anything. I mean, the 1200 is just, the, the balance on it is amazing. The, the low center of gravity 
Um, it's it's just the best all rounder there is at the moment, uh, I believe. I mean, I've been on, you know, the 650s um, from 650, 700, 800 up to the 1200 and on the adventure. And I I love the 1200. It's the easiest bike to ride. It really makes it easy. I hear this from so many people. You know, I haven't ridden a 1200. And I hear this from so many people. It's almost like, you know, they've, they've taken you in and they've put you under hypnosis or something <laughs> when you buy a 1200 <laughs> so that you come out saying, oh, it's just like the best bike ever. You hear this all the time. Well, you know, I think the figures speak for itself. Um, it's the best selling bike worldwide. So they're doing something right. Yeah, right. Hey, when we talked um, four years ago, you'd mentioned that you were writing a book about your adventure around Africa. And I think at the time it seemed like something that, I mean, I could tell in your voice, which I think a lot of things in your life, once you set your mind to it, you're going to do it. But it seemed like you didn't really have a handle on how you were going to pull it together at that point. Yeah, it was, you know, it was always the dream was when I finished the trip, I would write a book. But no one ever told me how hard it is to write a book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to sit I down. Had, to, I mean, even just to figure out what you're what you're going to say in the book, but let alone actually sit down and write the lines at one after the other and carry a storyline, in particular, if you're not a writer. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I have such newfound respect for writers. It's it's amazing. It's, um, you know, the first thing is the discipline is to sit down every day and to say, I'm going to write, let's say 10 pages a day. Um, and I had, I had incredible writer's block for like two years where I just couldn't write. I would sit in front of my laptop and I would write a sentence, type out a sentence, then delete it and type it a different way and then delete it. And it's, <laughs> it, it, I just wasn't getting anywhere. When you haven't written anything, though, Joe, and you have two years of writer's block, I think a lot of people are going to say at that point, okay, okay, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> it's not going to happen for me. <laughs> well, well, like I said, you know, if, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So um, it, took, it took a good three years, four years, um, until one day I said to myself, okay, I just have to sit down and do this. And my problem was that I wanted it to be perfect. I think a lot of um, people like me who, who is writing a book and will probably the only book that I ever write. Um, I wanted it to be perfect. So I would write a couple of chapters and then I would go back and read it and decide, no, it, it's not quite right. I should do it differently. And I was just not getting anywhere with it. And eventually I just said to myself, well, that is not my job. That's the editor's job. So I just need to write this book. And I think that's where the shift came in. So I just sat down and write whatever whatever was in my head. And um, then it started to flow. And I didn't go back to correct anything. I just kept writing. And then it started, you know, uh, getting better. And I got into a flow, um, writing a couple of pages every day. And it, it probably took about a year. But I eventually I, I got there and I did it. Did you have a, an editor working with you during that time? Yes. Yeah, so I, yeah, I got an editor to um, work with me during the time and she did a good job, you know, edited the book. Um, it took about six months for the whole editing process. So the, the timeline the book covers now, does it just cover your trip around Africa or does it cover everything up sort of to, to now where you are? 
So the timeline is pretty much from childhood all the way until I finished the trip around the African continent. Nice. So it gives you an idea of, of sort of where you come from. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it's a bit of my history and for people to get an idea of, you know, who I am um, and then getting into the cycling bits and then the whole thing in Angola and then motorcycling all the way around. What do you think gives you the um, tenacity that you clearly have? I don't know. I think I was born with it. <laughs> it's, it's always been there. Um, you know, I've never known a different way of being. It's, it's just always been a part of me. It's a shame to hear that as an answer because, you know, I think a lot of people are always looking for, you know, ways to get something that somebody else has. You know, you, you have that, you have this ability. First of all, I, I like the way you look at things when things happen to you. I, I like that, that outlook you have. You, you don't see it how I think what I picture being the common way to see things in particular, you know, you get robbed and, and you, you see things a little bit differently. But also when you, when you sort of get knocked down, you, you seem to get back up again and you say, okay, fine. And, and you chase it down. I mean, same thing you're talking about with a book, you, you stick with it and you, even though like really, I mean, writer's block for two years, give it up, you know, pack it in, it's done right <laughs> at that point. But no, you're going to stick with it. And it would be really neat if, if there was some sort of formula that said, oh, well, here's what I do. I, I mix, you know, a little bit of lime and <laughs> something and this is what gives me tenacity, but it's just, yeah. it's just you. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe that's the book I should be writing. <laughs> well, definitely. And, and sort of going ahead from that as well. I mean, I think it's interesting just to note the things you've done as far as becoming such an advanced writer. Like I say, in a short period of time, it shows a level of determination, dedication to, to get mm. that done. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm very interested in psychology. And um, I don't know what the formula is, you know, because... You can have um, five people who go through exactly the same um, experiences during childhood, growing up, and they would ultimately become five very different people. So I don't know what the formula is really. It's um, it's it's very individual. Yeah, and it makes you wonder if it's not sort of futile to chase down a personality change. I, I remember reading, I forget who, who it was, the, what philosopher it was or psychologist it was that said it, but um, said that personalities aren't necessarily formed. They fill the void of what's there. In other words, if you enter uh, an area and there's no, well, let's say school, you enter your classroom and there's no class clown, you become the class clown. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, so that, yeah. would, that would negate, though, what we're talking about, though, the fact that, you know, that you're sort of just the way you are because you were born that way. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Yeah, I think it is, you know, it is, I, I do believe it is a choice uh, on some level uh, because, I mean, our personalities never stop developing. They'll develop throughout our lives. Um, but, you know, what actually makes you decide what you decide, that's the interesting part. That's the, the fuzzy bit. Do you have to kick yourself in the, in, in the morning to, to get going on stuff, stuff sometimes? I mean, do, do you find, like, I mean, when you want to do something, is it sort of a cakewalk for you where you just get up and you have the drive and enthusiasm to do it? Or are there some tears and some stress and you think, no, you know, I've got to do it. Get out of bed, you know, get back on the bike. I, I struggle when I don't have a clear cut goal. If I don't have a goal that I'm working towards, then I, I have a hard time. Then, you know, I struggle to get myself out of bed and, and going every day. But if I have a, a clear goal, like, 
riding around the African continent, then that is my single focus every day. So um, I, I work well with having something to shoot for. You've um, been fighting uh, or dealing with depression and anxiety um, in recent years, or has that been something you've always dealt with? Uh, all my life, really, since I was a kid. And you recently were diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. What, what is that? Yeah, so bipolar disorder is a mental disease, um, a mental illness. You get bipolar 1 or bipolar type 2. And basically what it means is that I have, you know, everyone has ups and downs. That's normal. But then you have people who have extreme downs and extreme highs. Um, that's where you get into being diagnosed as bipolar. So you have extreme depressive episodes um, that can go on for, you know, weeks. And then you have these extraordinary highs um, where you believe you can do absolutely anything. Um, and it's quite disruptive living with it. Uh, but yeah, so you have bipolar type 1 is a more extreme version of it so where you have really high highs and um, not as much depression and bipolar type 2 is more depressive episodes and then you have um, what they call hypomania which is a high um, but not as high as type 1. How does that play into your, I mean, because we we're just talking about you being able to do all these things so on top of doing these incredible things that you've done and these incredible things you've dealt with in your life. And you have to deal with that as well. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I was, uh, it might sound funny, but I was happy when I was diagnosed because it was a moment where it was a moment of revelation where I thought, Oh, that's what it is. Now I understand. And it gave me something to work with. Um, so, I mean, I have an incredible team of, well, a doc, you know, doctors and therapists that I work with and um, a support structure of friends. And, um, you know, the medication that I'm on uh, really helps a great deal. I know there's, you know, people on different camps about either going on medication or not. But when you start getting into um, the neuroscience aspect of it, you know, it is a chemical imbalance and it's, um, you know, a disease of the brain, which is an organ, just like any other organ. And if you had a kidney disease, you would take medicine for it. So, you know, this is a brain disease and I, I choose to go with medicine and it really helps me. It helps me a lot. So this is you, you really, you're managing at this point. It's not something that's going to get better or worse for that matter. Yeah, so um, if I am uh, um, off my medication, it gets worse, um, but I manage it with the medication. So I would probably have to be on meds uh, probably for the rest of my life. It's still something that we are, um, you know, playing with to see uh, if maybe at some point in the future I could go off meds um, or not. But I like I'm happy with the diagnosis um, as it stands, and I'm able to manage it, so it's it's okay. Sure, it's it's one thing to to have some sort of problem, but it's another thing to at least know what you're dealing with. At least you can sort of 
show up knowing what uh, what you're dealing with and realize also that you're not alone. This is not something that's unique to you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's absolutely amazing how, you know, since I've been diagnosed, um, I'm very open about my diagnosis. And um, I've actually decided that I want to study medicine and um, specialize in psychiatry. And um, just today I had opera training and I had an interesting guy on training, a physicist, and he also um, suffers from bipolar. And it's amazing since I've been diagnosed how many people have come forward and, you know, especially with training, saying that they have the same problem or um, other psychiatric illnesses. It's, it's, there's so many people that actually um, struggle with, you know, all sorts of, of illnesses. What's it like on a, on a day-to-day basis? What, what sort of things will you be dealing with? Um, well, being on the medication, it's, it's pretty a normal day. But if I'm not on my meds, um, it would be severe depressive episodes for days on end. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible place to be in. Um, I, I always describe it as this very dark room in, inside my mind. And on a normal day, you know, I would just walk by the door and um, not pay it any attention. But when I'm in a depressive state, it's like I get pulled into that room and it's, you know, dark, clammy, horrible place where you just feel like the world is coming to an end and um, uh, so many negative thoughts. And it's uh, really, uh, you know, the kind of place that nightmares plays um, plays out in. Incredible, again, that you've managed to to have accomplished what you did dealing with that, because this is only recent. This is only in uh, 2017, I think, you were, you were diagnosed. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff that you've done, most of what you've done here was dealing with that and dealing with the things that you were doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, um, that's why I started my trip around Africa. It was you know, coming out of a very depressive, very bad um, depressive episode, I was actually um, at a point of contemplating suicide. And it was a moment where my brain um, thankfully went the other way and said, well, um, I don't want to do this, but if I'm not going to take my own life, then I'm going to go the opposite way and do something extraordinary. And that's how I decided that I want to ride around the African continent. Life must be so different for you now compared to when you left on the trip before with the bicycle the first time. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, it's very different. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a different person. Um, looking back to when I started on my bicycle up until now, um, you know, I... I I used to struggle with intense anxiety, you know, social anxiety um, and bad depression, like we said. And, you know, going around Africa was my way of fighting it and um, basically taking it on, you know, head on. And it was it was tough. It was hard Um, every day. You know, people always ask me, weren't you ever afraid? And. I was every single day, but I decided that despite being afraid, I would just, you know, take it one day at a time. 
and start to learn how to manage my anxiety on a daily basis. And I mean, this was extraordinary um, conditions to place myself in, you know, going through Western Africa on my own, dealing with corrupt border um, posts and uh, countries where, you know, people sometimes go in and never come out of. Um, it's It was like throwing myself in the deep end. But in the end, I came out a stronger person. And I learned so much about myself. And even though sometimes it's still a fight, you know, on a daily basis, um, I know that I, I'm able to somehow always make it out the other side. The book is called Woman Alone Around Africa, A Tale of Courage in Overcoming the Seemingly Impossible by Joe Rust. Where can people buy that book? So people can buy it. It's available on Amazon as a Kindle version. And then, um, unfortunately, at the moment, hard copies are only available off my website. Um, so people can buy a signed copy off my website. Uh, courier costs are just a bit ridiculous at the moment. So yeah. I send it DHL. But uh, most people opt to buy the, the Kindle version on Amazon. So Kindle on Amazon, or if they want the book itself, they can get a signed copy from your website, and we'll put that link in the show notes. Joe, great to talk to you once again, and I'm sure we're going to talk again soon. Uh, it was great to be back. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Joe Rust from her home in South Africa. You can find out more about Joe and what she does at her website. It's www.joerustadventures.com. And her book is called Woman Alone Around Africa, a tale of courage and overcoming the seemingly impossible. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you very much you can drop by our website www.adventureriderradio.com check the show notes for this one you're going to find the link in there to joe's book Um, as well you'll find all kinds of other information links to all the shows we've done including our other show that we do called arr raw that comes out once a month and you have to subscribe separately to that one now hey look we really need your help producing this show we mix it with the, the earth designed on a, a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work and we've sort of been driving at that listener support goal for some time now um, but we haven't achieved it so we could really use your help hey if you, you enjoy a cup of coffee each day think of the money you spend on that the enjoyment you get from it and then think of the show and what you you get from the show we really need you to come to the table here and support the show so drop by the website and click on the support button www.adventureriderradio.com hey thanks for listening really appreciate it my name is Jim Martin This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week.
You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio, and this is Tiffany Coates on the line from Land's End in England. (laughs) 